have a Bible this morning, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, and let's go to chapter 5. And this morning, we want to look at this topic, Jesus, our high priest. And so we're going to speak about the high priest that took place in the time of the Old Testament, and then we're going to go into that Jesus is our high priest. And as we continue in the Word of God, in the book of Hebrews, you're going to see that Jesus is our complete high priest. He, he becomes the complete sacrifice. So very important to study this. Now, in order to just begin to study concerning the priesthood again, go back up to Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verse 14 that we left off last week. And he begins here, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, our confession of faith. And so Jesus, we know, resurrected, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and the Bible says he makes intercession for us. Now he goes on, look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize, I like that, with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so we know in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, he's all man and he's all God. And he was tempted. We go back to Matthew uh, chapter 4, and he's coming into his public ministry. And Jesus goes and fasts, and it's 40 days, 40 nights. And the Bible says he's tempted. He's tempted. And so in his humanity, he shows us that place of temptation and he withstands the temptation now you look at that and you say well he's the son of god savior of the world but in his humanity he also took on the temptation and so look at verse 16 now as we come to this portion as we studied last week let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need or in a time of trouble we have access to the throne room of grace because of Jesus Christ, our final high priest. And so when we come to prayer, I no longer need a high priest. I no longer need a priest. But I have my complete high priest, which is Christ. And he allows us now to come into the Holy of Holies. Remember, when he died, the temple curtain rent in two. And so we have this access and not only can we come into uh, the throne room of grace, but we come with boldness and we can petition our needs. Now, we're going to be studying about the high priest. Let me give you two positions. The high priest in the time of the Old Testament had a twofold purpose uh, for the people. Number one, the high priest went before the people to represent a holy and a righteous God. In other words, the high priest represented God to the people. Secondly, the high priest was a mediator, a go-between for God and man. He was the bridge builder. In other words, the high priest represented the people to God. A holy God and a sinful man could not meet without a mediator. And so Jesus becomes this mediator. Now the priests represented righteousness and holiness. In the Old Testament law, it said that the priest was to go before you because a sinful man uh, could not approach a holy God. The priest would make the sacrifice, make the prayers, and plead to God for your behalf. Now, the Hebrew Christians, this is who the letter is being addressed to. We're coming to salvation in Jesus Christ. 
but their mind would return to them. Listen, we need a mediator. We need a high priest. We need a go-between. And the writer of the book of Hebrews will teach us that Jesus Christ is now and forever our final high priest. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish custom and basically the Jewish uh, family, the Orthodox Jews today can't receive this because they are waiting for Messiah. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They do not believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They do not believe Jesus Christ is the Savior. And so we should not have a problem with this this morning. But remember, they're addressing the Hebrew church. A major problem that the Jews would have then and now was that Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Now the priesthood and the high priest was to come out of the tribe of Levi. And so here the writer of the book of Hebrews, which I believe is Paul the Apostle, will take it further because there was an order that was called uh, the order of Melchizedek. Uh, there are those that believe it's another priesthood. But yet Melchizedek, we're going to study in Hebrews chapter 7. We'll teach a little bit about it this morning. But in Hebrews chapter 7, we'll bring it out. And so the writer of Hebrews will show that Jesus is superior. He's greater even than the order of Melchizedek. And so let's begin now. In chapter 5 of Hebrews, look at verse 1. And basically, the first four verses, he speaks about the qualifications of a high priest in the time of the Old Testament, in the time of the early New Testament. And so he begins here, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in uh, things pertaining to God, that he may offer both sacrifices, gifts for sins. Now, the high priest in the time of the Old Testament was a man. He was from the Levitical priesthood. He was a Levite ordained by God for man. He became the mediator between God and man. Now, the Jews knew that their sin separated them from their God, according to Isaiah chapter 59. We studied that last week, and I'm going to read it to you again. Uh, they saw the animal sacrifices. They saw them, the animal sacrifice dying for their sins. This brought a consciousness, an awareness of their personal sin nature. Now, usually the priest offered a gift of meal and was given the peace offering for fellowship. But imagine when they saw the blood sacrifice, a turtle dove, a lamb or a goat or a sheep. And so the blood through the animal sacrifice brought a strong conviction of sin. And they knew that they had separated from God because of their sin. I want you to listen to the verse. We studied it last week in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. God's hand is not short that it cannot save. And then he says this in verse 2. But your sins have separated you from your God. And so the conviction would be strong as they would see the animal sacrifice. And then they realize that they need a mediator. They need uh, a Messiah. But at this time, the priesthood, that's all that was offered. Now, it'll get, we'll bring it all together further. Look at verse 2 now, as we continue in our text. He can have compassion, this high priest now. 
He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since himself is also, he himself is also subject to weakness. So the high priest, listen, one of their duties, obviously, because there was a call in their hearts, they had compassion. And so they had compassion for the people because the people were ignorant. In other words, there was no understanding of God without the priesthood. These people were gone astray. They had wandered because of their sin nature. The priest would understand because he himself was spiritually weak because of his own sin nature. Now the word compassion, listen, they would look upon it. I want you to think of the compassion that God has for us now. The compassion that Jesus has for us as he paid the full price for us. But here in the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament... The priest would have compassion. The Greek says they would have compassion. They would bear with them. They would bear with the people. The idea to have sympathy for the people. The high priest is taken from among men in order that he may have the same type feeling, sympathize for those on whose behalf as he, he officiates for them in the office of the priest. Why? Because of his own ignorance. His own sin nature, he's able to sympathize with those who are ignorant just as he was. Ignorant to sin because he too was with this infirmity of sin. He is able to bear with others who have sickness of sin. You see, church, we come to this conclusion. We are all ignorant of sin until there's that conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does convict us. If you're taking notes back in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, we know that it's Saul of Tarsus. He's going to Damascus, very religious man, belonging to the Sanhedrin, belonging to the Pharisees. And he's going with letters in hand to bring back Christians, to place them in trial, and to even put some in prison and to consent to some of the deaths because he had consented to Stephen's death in Acts chapter 8. But Paul comes to that place. Remember, a light shone round about him. He's knocked off of his animal. Remember Paul's response, Saul of Tarsus, is that you, Lord, recognizing that it was the power of God that dropped him to the floor. At that moment, I believe that this Saul of Tarsus comes to saving grace. Now, if you're taking notes, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul speaks of his past to young Timothy. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. He was a violent man. He says, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly. I did it ignorantly and unbelief. So Paul sympathized because of his sin nature. The priest, the high priest, as he would go before for the people, he would sympathize because he was a sinner. And see, it's beautiful. As I preach the gospel, I have to recognize, first of all, that I need the gospel. I have to recognize, first of all, that I need to come to saving grace. I have to recognize that as a pastor, I'm a sinful man too. And we do this because... We know where we come from, and so we're able to address the people and to minister to their hearts. Imagine now, this high priest, knowing very well his sin nature, 
And we're going to see he has to make a sacrifice for himself. Now let's go to verse 3. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself. Listen, to offer sacrifices for sin. He was not exempt. Be careful when, you know, we see those types that will put themselves on a pedestal. I'm here, you're there. We're all men of sin. You're all women of sin needing a Savior. And so it's important here. According, verse 3 now, according to the Levitical law, the high priest would offer sacrifices, first of all, for himself. And then he would offer sacrifices for the people. Listen, recognizing that he too was a man of sin. Radical statement. If you're taking notes, in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 7, listen to what it reads. Moses said to Aaron, go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make an atonement, listen, for yourself. Aaron, you're not exempt. Make atonement first for yourself, and then for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded you. What a beautiful place. And I want you to think about that this morning. As we come to prayer, as we approach a holy God, recognize your own sin nature. Yes, we've come to saving grace, but Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me, wash me, Lord. I mean, we're in the world, but we're not part of it. And so I desire to be a cleansed vessel as I approach a holy God. And as we read back in chapter 4, the conclusion, I'm able to come boldly to the throne of grace because there's forgiveness in my heart. Now, in verse 3 still, we want to just draw this out. Jesus, we're going to see, is our final high priest, and he would make the final atonement for the sins of the world. You know the verse in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus becomes a complete sacrifice. Jesus is our last high priest. Now, those of us that grew up in Catholicism, as I did, remember, we would go to the priest. The priest would have the answer. And basically, what they told us, we did. But when we look at the scriptures, our high priest is Jesus Christ. And what he tells us in his word, that's what we're supposed to do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, we come to the conclusion in verse 4, and we've been giving the qualifications now of the high priest. And he goes in to verse 4, and no man takes his honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron, the first high priest, was. So the ministry, listen to this, the ministry then in the Old Testament and the ministry now is a calling from God. It is not a career. It's very sad. I've been in the ministry long enough, and you will run into these people that there's no call upon them. But basically, they look at the ministry, they look at the pulpit, uh, they look at the pastorate as a career. 
And God forbid, there has to be a calling. You see, church, it's not about the education. It's not about the Bible college. It's not about the seminary. Now, it's good to have those. But it's about the calling. As God places the call. As God placed the call on Aaron. As God placed the call on Moses. The call has to come from God. And here in verse 4, he says, in fact, we did not choose salvation. He first chose, we chose salvation, and then we choose him. No man should be in ministry unless God, unless the power of the Holy Spirit has burned it in the heart of man. And first of all, you come to salvation now. You serve God. And then secondly, you serve others. It is so important to see this in the body of Christ. Now, Aaron never asked it of God. I want to be called. But God placed the call on his heart. God called him, listen, and anointed him. On your own, study Psalm 133, and you see when they anointed Aaron. Now, the priesthood was very important in the time of the Old Testament. Now, it was pointing to a final priesthood and a final high priest, which is Christ. But in the time of the New Testament, things became corrupt. Now, you just put on your thinking cap. The concept was good of the high priest and the priesthood. But through the years, it became political. This was in the time of Jesus, and it became a financial gain an asset to get money during the time of the New Testament. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, there was a man by the name of Annas. He was the high priest, and he had a family. And basically, in the time of Christ, in the early church, Annas had five members that were at one time or another in the high priesthood. In fact, Caiaphas that we read about, we read about Annas, we read about Caiaphas. Caiaphas was a son-in-law. Now, here's another corruption uh, of the, you know, the time of the New Testament, the priesthood. Annas ran the money changers in the New Testament, in the beginning there. Remember when Jesus went into the temple. In fact, it tells us three times he overturns the money changers. You have turned my father's house, a house of prayer, into a house of financial gain. He was angry. Now, Annas ran this. He was in charge of the money changers. And what would happen is, basically, you had seven feast days that you had to attend, at least three of them. And so when you came to the time of Passover... Imagine all the people that would have been in Jerusalem. Josephus tells us that easily 240,000 animals would be sacrificed. Now, as you came in, depending on the amount of money you had, if you just had enough money, you would buy two turtle doves, bring them in. Or you would bring in a sheep or bring in a lamb or bring in a goat. If you had a big family, you had the money, you bring in a, you know, a bull. But when you came to the money changers there in the temple, they would always find a problem with your animal sacrifice. They would look and say, it's incomplete. There's a blemish here. And so they would take your turtle dove, and then they would give you, you know, another set of turtle doves, and then they would sell it to you. 
Well, one of the things that Annas was doing is that the prices would go up during the time of Passover. And so no wonder Jesus overturns the tables. You have turned my father's house, a, a house of prayer, into a house of financial gain. And remember when he overturned the tables? They said nothing to him. And so the ministry of Aaron, the ministry of the high priest, and then the ministry of the priesthood, they were to be holy. They were to be righteous. They represented God to the people. Remember Eli the priest? He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were evil. God eventually judged them. They were part of the priesthood. And so he's going to go into this whole rendition now. In verse 5 we begin, not the qualifications now, but he describes Jesus. Jesus Christ as our high priest and a priest forever. Now watch this in verse 5. So also Christ, he did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, and he quotes out of Psalm 2, verse 7, You are my son today. I have begotten you. Speaks of Christ. Now the word begotten, spiritual birth. We know that Mary was impregnated by the power of the Holy Spirit. There was no penetration. The seed was placed into her womb. Yes, she was a blessed woman. And so the Son of God, the Savior of the world, comes through this virgin girl. Notice the verse again. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now Jesus takes a position that is so strong. In verse 5 again, God the Father ordained his son to be the high priest in the church. Now Jesus took no glory. He took no honor, only what the Father gave. If you're taking notes, in John chapter 8, verse 54, these are the words of Christ. He's speaking to the religious sect, the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees. In verse 54, John chapter 8, If I honor myself, Jesus said, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. He's talking to the religious sect. They were not understanding this. Now, read that text completely. We don't have time this morning. But when you get to verse 58 in John chapter 8, Jesus speaking to the Jews and he turns and he tells them this. Before Abraham was, I am. Oh, the Bible says that they took up stones and they were ready to kill him. But it was not Jesus' time to die. That time was prescribed by the Father. Now, look at Psalm 2, verse 7 again. It's there in your text. You are my son today, I have begotten you. One commentary said this. This day I have appointed you to the office of a high priest. Jesus was fully qualified to hold the office and did not seek it for himself. He was appointed to the position of glory by God the Father. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is deity. You see, those are fighting words. 
in some circumstances. People can't handle that. Jesus is a good man. Jesus is a good humanitarian. Jesus is a good healer, good prophet. But when you declare, listen, Jesus is God, causes problems in some circles. Now, let's take it further. If you're taking notes, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, when we speak about the Trinity, it says here, Jesus Christ dwells in all the fullness of the God, the Godhead bodily. Now, this is the Trinity. In the fullness of the Godhead Trinity, in bodily form, is Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus, we see God. When we see Jesus, he represents, listen, the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful picture. Now, he's not finished quoting from the Psalms. Look at verse 6. As he also says in another place, and you see it right there in your text, he's quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so he is here called a priest. But in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, he's called our high priest. A priest absolutely because he stands alone in that character. A high priest in respect of the Aaronic type ministry. The order of Melchizedek, now watch this, is going to be explained further in, verse, in chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. We'll deal with it some more. But let me give you some insight on Melchizedek. The word Melchizedek, his name, in the Hebrew, it means king of righteousness. Now, Melchizedek was considered the king of Salem. The word Salem is peaceful. In Psalm 96, excuse me, Psalm 76, verse 2, another name for Jerusalem was uh, this peacefulness. The city of peace, Melchizedek is the priest of God, most high. Now, who is this Melchizedek? We'll draw some more in Hebrews chapter 7. But there are those that say, well, it's another priesthood. There are those that say he was an actual high priest. And then there's a third group. And I stand in this one. I believe he's a Christophany. I believe this is an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. That often times happen. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to study this later. We're going to draw a little bit from it. In Genesis chapter 14, all the way back, verses 18 through 24. Now, watch what takes place here. Who went out to congratulate Abraham, this is Melchizedek, on his victory over the battle in his, uh, of his allies. He met him in the valley of Shaveh, this, the king's valley, that's what it's called. Melchizedek, now watch this. He brought bread and wine for the exhausted warriors, and he bestowed his blessing upon Abraham. In return, now watch. In return, the patriarch Abraham gave to the royal priest Melchizedek a tenth, a tenth or a tithe of all the spoils that were taken from the enemy in the battle. Now, he's honoring him. As a high priest, he's honoring him, I believe, as God Almighty uh, in the presence of Melchizedek. Now, you can go with that or you don't have to go with it, but we'll draw more when we get to chapter 7. 
Melchizedek an actual high priest in the Old Testament? Or is he a Christophany, a Jesus Christ in appearance in the Old Testament? We'll leave it at that. But let's go to verse 7 now. Who in the days of his flesh, this is speaking of Jesus, he takes on the, the position of being the God-man. Who in the days of his flesh, this is his incarnation, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears uh, to him who was able to save him from death. He's praying to his heavenly father and was heard because of his godly fear. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to mark Luke chapter 22. I believe we're seeing a, a beautiful position here. The writer takes us back to Jesus now. When Jesus walked the earth for 33 years, as a man, he prayed to his heavenly father for help concerning his own flesh. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. It's not going to be an easy task. The weaknesses of his flesh, he would feel the pain. I believe that the reference here is when prior to Jesus' death on the cross, he knew the agony that was before him, that was the cross. In his flesh, he's all God, but in his flesh as man, he does not want to die. So we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is called the agony in the garden. Now, the word Gethsemane in the Greek means the olive press. And so it was a place where they were press the olives to extract the oil. But here, Jesus becomes this olive press now. And what's going to be extracted from him is his blood, where Jesus' blood would be pressed out. Now, if you're taking notes, again, Luke chapter 22, verse 44, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that he prays three times, Father, if there be any other way, take this cup of death. In his humanity, he didn't want to die, church. In his humanity, he didn't want to suffer. In his humanity, he did not want to go to the cross. The cross was the most hideous death in the time of the New Testament. Listen to verse 44, Luke chapter 22, verse 44. This happens, medically speaking, when somebody is in such great anguish. In verse 44, it says, being in agony, listen to the, the words now, he, Jesus Christ, prayed more earnestly than sweat, came like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. And so this word agony, Jesus was in anguish. Jesus was in struggle of what was going to take place. Jesus was in pain. He saw the cross. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that his blood had to be shed. Father, take this cup. If it's your will, take this cup. In other words, is there any other way than man could be saved? Lord, spare me. We know that there was no other way. Jesus had to go to the cross, church. Jesus had to die a hideous death, a painful death. Imagine all his blood was emptied out. He becomes that olive press, but now it's his blood. 
there at Gethsemane. So he's crying out. Now, what took place at Gethsemane? Number one, Jesus cries out to the Father. The hour had finally come. He knew it. Father, take this cup. Take this cup, which is the cross. But if not my will, let your will be done. So secondly, we know that there's only one way to the Father, and that's through the cross at Calvary. There was no other way. But Jesus had to come to that conclusion in his humanity. Now, thirdly, Jesus, in and through prayer, this is what happened at Gethsemane. Number one, he submitted to the Father. And secondly, not only did he submit, but he submitted in obedience. Not my will, but your will be done. And church, that's a good example for us. When I go to prayer, when you go to prayer, when I can approach the throne room, boldly, we're told there in chapter 4, the conclusion, let us come in humility. Let us come in brokenness. But we can approach the throne of grace. But let us come in submission uh, to the Father. Let us come in submission uh, to the Holy Spirit. And let us come in obedience. God calls us to that place of obedience. Being in agony. Again, verse 44. He, Jesus Christ, prayed more earnestly than his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I know some of your testimonies. I know some of the pains you've gone through. You know some of my testimonies of what I've gone through. We all have a testimony uh, one way or the other. And some of the things we've gone through in time past, hardship, pain, anguish. But I can honestly tell you, church, I have never prayed so hard such anguish that great drops of blood would come from my pores. And I don't think you ever have either. But yet, medically speaking, it has happened. Can you imagine what Jesus went through? Not my will, Father, but your will. Now, I tell you, when you know that, you come to one conclusion. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you died for me. You took my place. Lord, you became the complete sacrifice that I might have life, life eternal. You see, church, when we know that, how can we turn our back on God? How can we turn our back on his son? Jesus became that olive press at Gethsemane. But not just the olive press, but it's now him. It's his blood. Imagine how much was shed. Now, let's go on. Look at verse 8. Though he was a son, he's speaking of Christ, yet he learned obedience. Here's the son of God, Savior of the world. I ask this question. Why does he have to learn obedience? He's God. But remember, he took on man. He took on flesh to identify with us. And he sets the example Though he was a son, son to the father, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, there's another strange concept that through my suffering, I learn obedience. Through my suffering, I learn submission. And we respond, not my will, but your will be done. Remember when Paul had prayed three times? 
to take this thorn of the flesh away? And the Lord responded to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. And I'll tell you what, I've been to that place of prayer, asking, seeking, knocking on God's door, and I thank the Lord that he has responded. But what if he responded, Bob, my grace is sufficient. Can I submit? Can I come to obedience? Jesus did, and, and you know, he gives us you know, the formula, basically. Now, in verse 8, I, I love this. True obedience is doing something I really don't want to do. Yes, Jesus is and was then the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He chose to lay down his life, his will, and to seek and accomplish the will of his heavenly Father. There was no other cup. Nobody else could take this cup. And so when we come to prayer, we seek, we knock, we ask. But ultimately, I need to submit to the Father. Ultimately, I need to submit to Jesus. Ultimately, I need to be in obedience. Jesus, in and through prayer, learned, listen, as the God-man, submission and obedience to his heavenly Father. You know, it puts a whole new perspective in how I pray. I don't want to turn God into a sugar daddy. I want, I need, I better have. Some teach that from the pulpit. But I need to seek, Lord, what is your will? I know what Bob wants, but Lord, what is your will? Lord, what is your will? And most of us here, I believe, have learned that. Oh, and there's preachers that don't like, don't say that. You tell God, you demand from God. Where does that say in Scripture? If Jesus submitted, if Jesus came to obedience, what makes us think? Are we greater than him? Oh, Lord, I'm a broken man. Oh, Lord, you're a broken woman. Lord, hear my cries. Lord, what is your will in this situation? I've prayed that before. What is your will, Lord? And we must be content with God's will in my life. Hmm. Now, we're told that Paul, after the Lord told him three times, and he prayed three times, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient. We don't have Paul asking him any more than that. He was content. He was content. Are you content when God answers a prayer, and it's sometimes not the way I want it? Are we content? Because God knows better than I do, right? And so, submission Obedience. Look at verse 9 now. And having been perfected, this is Christ, he became the author of eternal salvation. Underline that. To all who obey him. Interesting. Jesus submits to the Father. Jesus obeys his Father. And now the chain of command. I'm to submit to Jesus. I am to obey him. Radical statement. Here in verse 9, Jesus came to the place of perfection. As the Son of God, Savior of the world, at the cross, he comes to the place of completeness. Listen, full age, full maturity. Jesus was at his prime now. Three and a half, 33 and a half years walking the earth as the God-man. Jesus was ready to become the complete sacrifice for all mankind. He's already made his prayer in the Gethsemane. He chose to obey his father. 
What about us? Have we made the choice, listen, to obey, number one, to receive Jesus Christ, and then secondly, to obey, uh, to serve Jesus Christ with all my heart. Now, I learned this years ago because we have a tendency, Lord, I'm going to serve you, but I'm going to make the rules and regulations. Lord, I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to serve you with a half heart. Lord, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to serve you with a three-quarter heart. Now, I want you to listen to the verse. In Proverbs 3, verse 5, the Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. With all your heart. Trust in the Lord. Lord, I don't know what you're going to do with me at this time, but I, I see certain hoops that I've jumped now. I see where I'm at, Lord. I'm going to trust you. And trust is having faith in God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now I want you to listen to this. In James chapter 1, verse 22. A, a beautiful verse. We've studied it many times. James says, be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And then he said, I ask the question, why? Because we deceive ourselves. When we don't do what the word of God has to say. Now, let me explain it a little bit further. James chapter 1, verse 22. I love the Amplified Bible. And the Amplified Bible amplifies what I just read. Listen to the Amplified. Be doers of the word. Obey the message. He puts that in parentheses. And not merely listeners to the message because we betray ourselves into deception by reasoning contrary to the truth. And what truth are we being deceived? We deceive ourselves into truth, which is the gospel message. You see, if the word of God says to do this or to do that, then let's obey the word of God. It is God's word. And I know it's tough because I'll come to passages of Scripture and I'll say, Lord, this is a tough one. Yes, trust me. Lord, I don't know if I could handle as Paul, and he prays three times, and then you say, my grace is sufficient. I don't know if I can handle that. This week, my pastor's wife, Sharon, she had a mastectomy, and their ministry, their ministry is huge. They touch the world. And yet you, say, you can easily say, but Lord, why her? And then the response is, why not her? Nobody's exempt. And I can honestly tell you, I know Sharon, I know Pastor Raw, they're trusting God. And now the chemotherapy that follows. And so you have this huge ministry, and yet you have trials, tribulations, and hardship. Nobody, nobody is exempt. I tell you, when I get on my high horse and I say, Lord, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? The Holy Spirit always busts me. Bob, go back and read Job chapters 1. I don't want to read Job chapters 1 and 2. But the Holy Spirit will do those kind of things. See, sometimes we're like uh, Elijah. I'm the only prophet you have, Lord. I respond. I'm the only one that's going through this. No. <laughs> we all go through trials hardships, pain. Remember, in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 13, I believe, God will never give you any more than you can handle. I love and I hate that verse. Because I'm going through it and then the Holy Spirit gives it to you and I go, mm. 
He'll never give me any more. And I want to respond, I can't handle it. But God knows, church, we must give it to him. Again, don't be just hearers. Don't be doers of the word and not hearers only. Listen to God's word and then put it to, to work. Now, verse 10, Jesus, that's who he's speaking about, called by God as high priest. And we go back to Melchizedek according to the order of Melchizedek. So God the Father called Jesus, his son, as the high priest. The Holy Spirit makes reference again to the order of Melchizedek. The high priest would stand before God to represent the people. And when he would stand before the people to represent God. Jesus, as our complete high priest, brings us directly in fellowship with his heavenly father. It, we come right to the throne of grace as we studied in chapter 4, verse 16. We come boldly. You see, church, this has been done once and for all. We're going to study that in the book of Hebrews. Jesus does not die every time we have the communion mass or the communion service. Jesus dies, the scripture says, once and for all. And that's a conclusion I had to come with years ago. Now, again, this has been done once and for all. This is why, according to Hebrews 4, 16 now, we can come boldly through the throne of grace. Excuse me. Now, the order of Melchizedek was an order exclusive to Jesus because he belonged to the tribe of Judah, not the Levitical tribe. And again, we'll study that more when we get to Hebrews chapter 7. But look at verse 11 again, or we're going to cover it now. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain. Remember, he's writing to the Hebrew Christians. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of your hearing. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but a doer also. And so here's the Hebrew Christians. They were listening to the word of God. They had received the word of God. But they have become stagnant. Moms, dads, you know when you talk to your kids, they're looking at you. They're shaking their head. But nothing went in. Because you, you ask them. Did you hear what I said? Yeah. What did I say? Totally different thing. They did not listen. I did the same thing with my mom. I did the same thing with my dad. We have to be listening to God. And he will speak to us. I promise you. So uh, the church, the Hebrew church, had become dull of hearing. Not all of them, obviously. But the Holy Spirit here in verse 11 wanted much more to say. The Holy Spirit wanted much more to say, but the young and immature Hebrew Christian could not grasp it all because their hearing was dull. Listen to the word dull. Their hearing was sluggish. Their hearing was lazy to hear the mature word of God. It's a sad place. We, we can be part of the church for many years, but do we listen? Uh, he's going to personally He's not going to attack, but he's going to personally address their immaturity as we come to the conclusion. Now, the Hebrew, or the Greek, excuse me, suggests this dull of hearing. It was 
hard to explain to them because of the dull of hearing. They were not picking up on what the Holy Spirit was saying. They could not grasp everything. In other words, it became a mystery to them. Now, I want you to think about things that were a mystery to us. When I first come to Saving Grace, what do you mean I'm born again of the Holy Spirit? What do you mean God's taken my sins and cast them as far as the east is to the west? And then we started hearing terms like, what do you mean the rapture of the church is coming? You remember the first time you heard that a time is coming in the book of Revelation, from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 18, it's called the Great Tribulation. It speaks about, you know, 21 judgments that are coming. And then you would just look. In fact, you would read it. What are you talking about? Trust me, when we get into the book of Revelation, your eyes are going to be open. But we come to maturity and we listen and we read and we respond. Well, the Hebrew Christians were not responding. Now, a mystery in Scripture is a divine truth, but now revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, now, when the rapture of the church is spoken of, we studied it and you studied it. You go, I know what he's talking about. I know what the Holy Spirit is saying. When the seven years of tribulation, hey, I know what he's saying. When you say 21 judgments, I know. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. You see, now the Holy Spirit has revealed it to us. I want you to write down these two verses, and I want you to dwell upon them. And I want you to take them into your heart. In John chapter 14, verse 26, I'm just going to paraphrase it real quick. You can go back and study it. The Holy Spirit, he's our teacher, right? He will teach you all things. And bring all things to your remembrance. Now, I'm the instrument. I'm the tool. I bring forth the word of God. But it's the Holy Spirit that teaches you. You open your Bible and you read it. And you begin. And you go, man, this is good. The Holy Spirit's teaching you. Second verse. John chapter 16, verse 13. Again, the Holy Spirit. Listen, he's our teacher. He will guide you into all truth. And he will tell you things to come. Things to come. And I love when we study the Word of God. You know, you open the Bible, and all of a sudden, it's speaking directly to you. You come in on a Sunday morning. You've had some questions all week, and then the Holy Spirit answers them. You come on a Wednesday night, and the Holy Spirit answers them. That's the power of God. Remember last week, this is not a dead word. It's alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it cuts to the very soul. Now notice verse 12 to the conclusion here. Our personal spiritual immaturity. The Hebrew Christians, some of them, not only were they dull of hearing, but they were immature. And this morning, before I read any further, I hope and pray that if you've been a Christian five years, you have progressed. You've been a Christian ten years, I pray and I hope you've progressed. I hope and pray you're not still in the milk of the Word of God. Those of us with children, obviously, when your kids are born, bottle feed, breastfeed, and then you work up to those little jars, or you, you know, smash the food yourself, and, you know, I don't know how my poor kids ate peas. Oh, 
I would tell them, this is good for you. And I, I hated the faces they made. I go, this can't be good for you. Now that's a whole other story. But listen to the spiritual immaturity. You cannot stay in the milk of the word. You have to grow. In verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, he's exhorting them with love and compassion. The Hebrew Christians, some of you should be teaching already. You ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again and again the principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk, not solid food. You should be in the solid food. I mean, your little two-year-old, I don't know how long you kept him on the bottle, but eventually you take him off the bottle. But imagine now he's in the 12th grade, still takes a bottle to school. I don't think so. Hopefully he progressed. True story. He'll kill me if he ever finds out. My nephew back in Southern California, he used to go to sleep with his mom and dad. You know how some of us do that? Now, I told Mary, please, keep the girls out of our bed. I'll roll over. I'll squash one of them. I go, you and I barely fit in the bed. Don't be bringing the... So our kids never slept with us. But my, it's not my nephew, my cousin, my cousin Josh. He was 12 years old, church. 12 years old. And every night about 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, he would trickle into the bedroom. And my uncle just got used to it. Instead of fighting it, he would go to the couch. And he would go into the bed. You know how he got busted? At school, talking with the boys, he mentioned, oh, yeah, I was in sleep last night with my mom and dad. And they, you know, the guys are going to give you the raspberries. Twelve years old, you're sleeping. He came home, he was angry at his mom and dad. How come you didn't tell me I shouldn't be sleeping with you guys anymore? Twelve years old, sleeping with your mom and dad. It should not be. That is immaturity. Now look at verse 12 again. How important it is for the body of Christ to grow in maturity. The Hebrew Christians, many of them, were still babes in Christ, still drinking uh, of the milk of the word uh, of God, needing to get into solid food, sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, healthy teachings of God's word. The Holy Spirit said this, some of you should be teaching the word of God to others already. Now, I have another insight here. We know that the book of Hebrews was written around 64 to 68 A.D. What I'm trying to get at, 70 A.D. was very close. The destruction of Jerusalem was going to come. Titus and the Roman army was going to come and level Jerusalem. Uh, the Jews were going to be scattered to the four corners of the world. And they better know their word persecution comes to our country you better know your word what if we're taken into prison what if your pastors are put away and they will not give you the word is there enough in you to sustain you we need to know our word 70 AD was going to come very quick we need the word of God now Pastor Chuck describes these Hebrew Christians that were still drinking of the milk of the word. 
he calls them arrested spiritual development. They had become stagnant. Oh, I'm okay. John 3, 16, that's all I need. No, we need to progress, church. We need sound, healthy doctrine. I mean, we have canines in the back. Once in a while, we need to chew on a steak. Come on. Strain food again? You know what fears me? The Lord's not going to take us home in time, and I'm going to grow old, and then I'm going to go back to that type of food. Here, let me borrow your teeth while you're not using them, and we won't go there. Look at verse 13 now. They don't do that, do they? For everyone, listen, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled. Radical statement. In the word of righteousness, for he or she is still a baby in Christ. Here's a stern warning. If you remain or if you stay just in the milk of the word, you are unskilled. No experience in the doctrine of righteousness. No experience in right living for God. No discernment when it comes to the spiritual battles. We're going to see that in the last verse. No discernment. You see, what am I going to do when I go through my trials? I'm going to rely on the milk of the word? No. You need to stand firm on the word of God. The solid word of God. Doctrinal issues. Lord, the promises that you've given us in scripture. And so some of them uh, there at the Hebrew Christian church, they become stagnant, dull of hearing. And now immature. You're unskilled in the word of God. Look at verse 14, the conclusion now. But solid food, solid food. The best translation is firm doctrine. Solid food belongs to those who are full age, maturity. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised. And here's the key. You're able now to discern both good and evil. Solid food, firm doctrine, is for the fully mature ones. For those whose spiritual senses and spiritual mental faculties to reason and to discern. In other words, you're able to practice good and true spirituality. When the time comes to choose between good and evil, because of immaturity, they will choose evil. The enemy will eat you up and spit you out as prey to be devoured. Because they knew not the word of God. To discern is to judge against evil or good. And the Holy Spirit shows you. To judge or to discern is to recognize, hey, I need to go into the, the good side, not the evil side. But if you don't know your word, you say, well, you know, I'm just going to go back to the world. I'm just going to go back to Babylon. I'm just going to go back, you know, to Egypt. And so many Christians do, church. Discernment. Discernment. To judge, that's the best translation, between good and evil. I mean, it's just like when we come up to a stop sign, there's a fork. Obviously, we need to make a decision. And if you know where you're going, you're going to make the right decision. But if you don't know, you're immature, you're going to choose evil over good. Oh, and the enemy loves it. Now, why should we know our word? Listen, uh, write this down. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter exhorts 
and here's to those in the great diaspora. They were scattered also. Peter says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We should be ready to answer anybody that would ask us of the hope that's within us. If we don't know God's word, if his word is not evident in my heart, how can I share my faith with others? How can I withstand my trials? How can I handle persecution? How can I handle the world as it gets more and more hatred, animosity towards the church? It's going that way. Watch our society today. Here's two keys. I need to know my personal high priest, which is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I need to know his word. I need to know my personal faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of faith. We need to know our word real quick. Years ago, back home, before we had moved out here, there was a, a good friend of ours. Her name was Angie, young girl. She come to saving grace. And man, she was on fire. The baptism of the Holy Spirit hit her. She hadn't really gotten into the word yet. She was a new babe in Christ. About six weeks in the Lord. But man, every time she went to church, she received more. Every time she prayed, she received more. And she was reading and she was reading, and just a young babe in Christ. Two Jehovah's Witnesses came to her door. She wasn't rooted and grounded yet. She didn't know sound doctrine, but she had come to saving grace. And usually, in the Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll send two by two. One is mature, and one, you know, is the, the little lamb, learning the ropes. And this 28-year-old woman, 28 years in Jehovah's Witness, she was trying to, you know how they want to come inside, they want to show you, they want to sell you the awake in those days for a quarter. And she was sharing with Angie. And Angie thought they were Christian. She goes, oh, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. She, she wouldn't let the lady talk. And Angie just kept sharing. Listen, the only thing she knew was her testimony. I was this, I was that, I was this, and God saved me. And man... The Holy Spirit came over me, and God has transformed me, and he's transforming me. And the Jehovah's Witness lady was mad. The mature one was mad because she wanted to sell her doctrine. She wanted to show her doctrine. And Angie would say, I don't know, but I know this. Jesus died for me. Jesus set me free. And she got mad. She goes, I've been a Jehovah's Witness 28 years, and you're telling me you know more than me? And she goes, I guess so. Come to saving grace and then watch what God can do for you in and through you. But you have to get into the word of God. That's what we do here on Sunday morning. When I got saved 30 years ago, I thank God my wife gave me a living translation. If I, I would have had the King James, I would have been dead. But she gave me the living translation. And man, I read through it. I read through the uh, Gospel of John. I went through the book of Acts. I went back. Gospel of John again, the book of Acts. And then I read through the whole New Testament. And man, I tell you, because it was a living translation, the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. All of a sudden, drinking stopped, smoking stopped, uh, cursing stopped. All those things. Nobody said it. But God did it through his word. We are immature but then we grow in the word of god god forbid you tell somebody oh, i've been a christian 10 years and there you are 
with a little baby jar of food. No, no, no. Let's grow in the word of God. Why? Because Jesus is my high priest. Jesus died to give me life, life eternal. We're going to share so much more in the book of Hebrews. Let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your precious word. Lord, your word that will not come back void. Lord, I thank you. As I look amongst us, Lord, I believe each one of us are Christian. We're born again of the Holy Spirit. But, Lord, maybe some of us are still dabbling in the milk of the word. We need to grow. We need to grow. We need to progress. And so, Lord, I'm going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to pray right now, the prayer of faith. Lord, I pray that you would give us such a hunger and a thirst for your word. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, that we would get into your word, that we would be able to discern what is good and evil. Oh, Lord, teach us your word. The psalmist says, your word have we hid in our heart that we might not sin against thee. Your word has become a lamp unto my feet. Lord, you desire to write your word on not tablets of stone, but on our hearts, Lord. Thank you. And so, Father, bless your beautiful people here this morning. Father, bless the offerings as you've given to us. We give back a portion, and it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.